Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome, everyone, to a crazy, break-in, super urgent, very brief episode of Reconsider, where we still don't do the thinking for you. And today, we're going to be talking about delegate math in the U.S. presidential nomination, particularly the GOP. And it's urgent because there are things that are lined up to get pretty bloody exciting on March 15th, so we want to get it out before that. For those of you listening after March 15th, there's still a whole lot to learn about the totally wacky nomination process in the United States. And you even will get to judge our analysis with hindsight, which is very exciting. Who said math can't be exciting? Did anyone ever say that? Fair point. I, I've never met anyone who said that. <laughs> yeah, math is great. And today, we are actually going to keep the math kind of to a minimum. There's going to be some history, some structural stuff and some really exciting what the heck is going to happen, which for those of you who are following the Republican nomination know, it's a more, way more numerically interesting nomination than we've seen in a very long time. The field is way more wide open this late in the game than it's been. Right now, as of March 10th, so before that March 15th showdown, Trump has a pretty modest lead over Cruz. Uh, they're very close in the national polls, Rubio and Kasich are behind. They are nipping up enough delegates that it's going to actually be pretty hard for either Trump or Cruz to definitely score a majority of delegates. It might happen. It might not. We'll talk a bit more about the deets in the future. And a lot of folks have asked us about this. When people ask me, hey, Eric, what's going to happen in the nomination? I've been saying probably broker convention. And most of them go... Okay, I've heard those words. I have no idea what they mean. And I keep trying to give them a, the simple version of the answer. And they're all smart. So they go, well, what about blah? And I go, yeah, well, okay, f yes, that's also part. So fine, let's just do a podcast on it. And we're nerds. So we went and we just studied everything. And one of the things that we found is that people are so used to having not brokered conventions that the general assumption is just that voters get to pick who the nominee is and that either they always have or they just have for so long that they've forgotten the process 
is actually more complicated. And it's not just weird, antiquated formalities. There's actually a lot that could be going on that could happen this year. And for us nerds, that's pretty exciting. So we're going to tell you a little bit about the basics behind the structure for the nominations and then use that to try to get a sense of what might happen on and after March 15th. Yeah, I think you make a really interesting point because there are rules that exist in each party's playbook that does just really don't usually matter. But as things tend to go perhaps more unexpected than the elite were thinking about, these sort of strange rules start to ha- play a real serious impact in the electing process. So before we can get into what some of those rules are, let's just cover the basics of the election process. So each party... Nomination process. Uh, nomination nomination process. process. That's it right. It is not an election. You are correct. This is the primary. We are nominating candidates in each party right now. That'll be important later. Good point on semantics. Um, Actually, it'll be important right now. Go! Ready, set, each party officially chooses their candidate at a convention. And the convention is what happens at the end of this primary process that we're in right now. And at this convention, the delegates vote. And delegates are just representatives who have some sway in each party that go and vote on behalf of the people who voted in their state. So for both parties, they must reach a majority before a candidate is officially chosen. So each party actually has a pretty different set of rules that have different details that influence how the nomination process actually ends up playing out. So in the discussion about Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party recently, for example, you may have heard a lot about superdelegates. And superdelegates are just delegates that are not ever pledged to vote one way or another. They can just vote however they want. And this has come up in the context of yeah, well, no matter what happens with Sanders, the party elite and the Democrats are just going to use these superdelegates to ensure that Sanders doesn't get nominated. Of, of course, there are issues with the elite participating in acts that may seem to damage their legitimacy, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. You might also have noticed that the Republican and Democratic parties don't always vote in the same state on the same day. They usually do. And between the parties, the states are frequently worth a very different number of these delegates, these representatives. And it's it's worth noting on the superdelegates question for some of you guys who are paying more attention to the Democratic convention, about 20% of all the delegates are superdelegates, which means that if someone gets 60% of the pledge delegates, there's nothing the superdelegates can do. But if it's close, they're going to decide how it goes one way or another. And traditionally... When it's been close, they have sided with the candidate with more pledged delegates, but it doesn't have to happen. And this seems kind of wacky, and some people say, well, how is this allowed to happen? And the, hey, it's not an election point comes to bear here, because there aren't actually any laws that govern the mandate or the mechanics of the nomination process. Each party gets to make up its own rules. Right. It's easy to forget that the Republican and Democratic parties are essentially private organizations. Remember when you were taking your American history class, you heard about the Federalists and the Whigs. They were parties that existed at that time. And at one point, they essentially ultimately evolved into the current day parties. So they're not public institutions. In fact, 
a little later in the show, we'll talk about one rule that very well may be changed if, well, at the convention that happens uh, this election cycle on the GOP side that may have serious implications in terms of... Foreshadowing. See, we use literary devices in this show. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there might be a rule change that influences who gets elected on the GOP side. And GOP elites might be contemplating using this rule in, in a strategy to get what they want, which is what politics is all about, right? Yeah. So, okay, let's take a, let's take a step back. And the short version is you're so used to conventions being just vanity shows where everyone gets a bunch of flags and confetti drops on them and they eat little half sandwiches without crust and it really doesn't you don't know who the delegates are because it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter because someone has come in with a majority of delegates uh pledged to them and when that happens the first vote of the convention these guys are they have to vote this way and so they end up we know going into the convention who's gonna win it's just a surefire thing based on the rules great and the in the case that someone comes into the convention without a majority of delegates, it becomes contested, which is really exciting for the nerds. Um, It's also known as a brokered convention and a broker, you know, when we say brokered, it implies that there's like fat guys in suits and cigars and smoke filled back rooms. And they've probably bugged the rooms with each other. And they hash out some shady deal as to who's going to be, the nominee that we're stuck voting for with for that party and uh, you know if that if that image might come to mind and it's actually not that far from the truth it's kind of like tammany hall in new york city and boss tweed except this was exactly the sort of stuff that primaries were supposed to prevent in the first place before the progressive era and and by that i mean like early 20th century think teddy roosevelt's time there were no primaries, and the party bosses just nominated, they, they picked the presidential candidates themselves. Yeah, there were still conventions, but a bunch of delegates showed up, and they had this awesome power in their hands to decide who was going to be the nominee. And these party bosses were, you know, they had influence, and they were able to get people together and do some squeezing and some horse training and some arm twisting to get them to vote a certain way. You know, and that seems weird, and it is. But to understand it, let's look at a little bit of history, right? One of the ways we can put this into some context is that if we look at the conventions of the itty bitty parties like the Greens, Libertarians, the Constitution Party, uh, all that stuff, we can see today what old conventions looked like. You might notice that when you go to vote in your primary, that you don't have the option to vote for the primaries of the Libertarian Party or the Green Party at a national level. And that's because they just don't have primaries. They have conventions where delegates who are organized by the party leadership come and they talk and they decide uh, and they just do it. Um, So it's an un, you know, it's a wholly undemocratic process from the perspective of picking the candidate. And it actually ends up looking a lot like a caucus just in the one place in that convention. And that's how all of these parties worked back in the day. And you might have heard, if you're following the election cycle or the nomination cycle, sorry, this distinction between caucus and primary, you uh, you are welcome. 
And <laughs> there, there, there is a difference between caucus and primary. And I won't get into a ton of detail here. Nate Silver's 538 discusses the distinction in, in a good amount of clarity, I think, on, on at least one article I've read. But essentially, a caucus is when a lot of people actually get together physically in a room from high school auditorium to town halls. And then they talk openly about their preferences and try to convince people and they then vote openly a lot of times by just standing in a certain location in the room. Right. And this, you might go, what, what about my right to secret ballot? Well, this isn't the election. So there's no right to a secret ballot in the nomination process because it's really just citizen input into the nomination process rather than the, the election itself. Yeah. And, and in these private parties, you know, initially states were assigned delegates roughly by the size of the population or by the count of party voters in the state. So it really was, and to, to a degree remains under the influence of party bosses in every state. Yeah. And this, again, this seems strange, but just remember we're a representative republic rather than a direct democracy where we vote at each stage of the thing. The original the original design was that there'd be a bunch of different candidates that would go forward. And when parties formed, you know, and they didn't have formalized parties, so Washington didn't have a party behind him, nor did John Adams. This happened a little bit later, but when these formalized parties formed, they decided who they would endorse, right? And it just so happened that they came up with their own rules about who to endorse. So that that's just how it worked. And later on down the line, so if we look into the progressive era, what happens is we start having a few states that instead of sending delegates with instructions from local party bosses, they start having caucuses or primaries that are open to voters, where the voters can give some input, and they even added some or all of these pledged delegates. So it might have been a mix of, you know, party bosses send some instructions, the voters send others based on their vote. And this happened in the U.S. system generally because it was becoming more democratic. So a good example is uh, senators used to actually be elected by the state assemblies or legislatures rather than people. And now they, you know, and now now it's a democratic process rather than an indirect process. Yeah, this changed when the 17th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified in 1913. And before then the senator election process did resemble somewhat more the current delegate process while the candidate the presidential candidate nomination process via delegates so for a lot of these states some but not necessarily all of those de- delegates were quote bound to vote and that's an important term that we'll we'll come back to bound to vote in the very first ballot that occurred at the party convention yeah so you can see this process is evolving over time. Some states are adding some bound delegates and some free unbound delegates that can do whatever they want. And as each state adds a democratic element to its delegate proportioning and delegate binding process, each one comes up with its own rules because it's just made by the local parties at that state level. And so some of them are winner take all. This is only the case in the GOP. The Democrats all have uh, the same kind of proportioning algorithm based on vote, uh, but it's not directly proportional. They tend to be a little bit skewed to the winner. Some are more skewed to the winner. And, you know, some of them are just elections at ballot boxes. Some of them are caucuses. 
and you know, and so you now have this just like totally crazy hodgepodge of different primary nomination processes and and delegate apportioning rules for each state. And you don't even need to try to keep track of all of them unless you're just really into it. And it's even the case that some states and in particular little territories like the Marianas Islands and Samoa send a lot of unbound delegates still, sometimes in addition to bound delegates. And these unbound delegates are like the delegates of old. They aren't forced to vote for anyone particular in the first ballot. They can do whatever they want, at least as far as the rules. And it's going to be the case that they're going to be sent with some guidance and instructions from the party bosses that have picked them to go. So let's just summarize here. There are bound delegates who are required to vote the candidate that they've been assigned to by their popular vote in the first ballot that occurs at the convention. Yes. There are also pledge delegates who are not bound by this rule to vote for a candidate. So they can vote for whoever they want, but they're supposed to vote, quote, with their conscience in the interest of the state sending them. So in other words, they're supposed to vote the way the, the popular vote in the state voted for, but they don't have to. Now, only the DNC or the Democrats has these pledge delegates. Yeah. So Yes, if you've ever been confused by the primary process, you're not alone. It varies state to state, party to party. It is extraordinarily confusing and complicated. Yeah, and to make matters even more just totally whacktastic, uh, as you probably know, all these primaries happen on different days. They don't even happen on the same day. And it's just an antiquated thing. It just back in the day, you know, it was in the year before the election or before the uh, convention. You know, different states would just pick different days to have their little get together and to talk about what they're going to do and who they're going to send and who they want to vote for. And, you know, way back in the day, news traveled slowly. See our last podcast episode on Apple versus the FBI for the timing of the invention of the telephone and other technology. And because this stuff traveled slowly, there's just less of a tendency for candidates to, quote, gain momentum in early states because, you know, something would happen in Iowa or New Hampshire and, Either the, you know, the guys in California wouldn't even really hear about it or just that stuff would happen so slowly that there wouldn't be this like rapid change in public opinion. But now because of that, just, you know, just so happened to be an antiquated system, Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina, they just happen to be the early states. And now their influence is just massively disproportional in sorting out a big field like the Republicans at like 18 at some point into a much smaller batch. And now we find ourselves in a circumstance where these states really matter a lot. Why do they matter so much? I mean, if you think about it, a lot of people who probably live on the coast, New York City, Los Angeles, they, they don't think about Iowa or New Hampshire too, too frequently. But all of a sudden, every four years when the primary season rolls around, you hear it constantly. And it, for some reason, it just feels like it carries a weight that, that they generally don't. And... A lot of this frequently is this perception of momentum. So if candidates start winning these early states, and since Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina are the first states where nomination votes occur, then these candidates can claim, you know, well, I'm obviously going to win the nomination. I mean, look at how well I'm doing so far. So, far. so it, it makes sense to coalesce around me and not divide the party base, because ultimately our goal is to defeat the other party, right? Right. And... So it's, 
you know, if you're sitting here thinking, man, this this could really be improved. You're right. And it just happened to grow this way like a tumor without any planning. Uh, and it's why it's so, you know, so weird now. In the modern age, information happens quickly. And so public opinion changes quickly. And so that coalescence happens quickly. And so it's almost always the case that someone rolls in with a majority of these bound or pledged delegates. And when that happens, these delegates are forced, again, by rule and not law, to vote for the candidate they're bound to. So usually, like, sometime in May, if we look back to 2012, we can go, okay, Romney won. And then it's it's over. And then the convention is just all those people waving flags and eating little sandwiches. It's just a vanity party. Everyone says some nice things about the guy that we've anointed, and eh, we can move on. Great. Sometimes they roll out their VP here. Sometimes they don't. And the last time that someone didn't get a majority of votes in the first ballot was 1952. This is the Democrats. In 1948, the Republicans. And each of these happened to go to a total of three ballots. And we're not even going to talk about who won those nominations because they lost the election. So a little fun trivia that I dug up. Uh, the record for the most ballots ever in a convention was in 1924 is the Democrats. And it went to 103, which is basically like electing a pope at that point. Drew Gregorian chant and Xander imagining blue smoke coming out of the convention hall instead of white smoke. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Oh, they picked one. They're going to come out of the convention hall now. Oh, goodness. Oh, God, they smell. <laughs> Man, the Pope election process, and, and just for like a very brief tangent, is is just like crazy. These people, these cardinals get locked in a room, and they're just stuck there until they make a decision. Do they just like put pizza like through the mail slot in the door for them? Something like that, yeah. Maybe pancakes, too. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, it, but, you know, you mentioned this 1952 and the 1948 uh, nominations for the Democrats and Republicans, respectively. An interesting point of trivia that I dug up is you mentioned they both failed. These people did not actually win the general election. The last time a candidate successfully emerged out of a contested uh, contested convention and won the presidency was a president you may have heard of, Democrat Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1932. Whoa. That's cool. Indeed. Wow, history could have been a lot different if those guys in that room with the pizza did something different. <laughs> right, if the uh, if the wrong color smoke came up. Yeah, I'm just sure it's you know it's just such a different, less well funded, not so many nice hotels process back then. Totally. Yeah. Okay, so we know that if someone goes in with the majority of delegates, they're it's good, and if they don't go in with the majority of delegates, we have a brokered convention! Chen, chen, chen. Echo added for dramatic effect. Chen. Extra dramatic yes. effect. Extra. It is kind of dramatic. I, a, bro a brokered convention basically throws the entire primary process at the wayside. It throws it over, over the side of the boat, and the party bosses can basically say, you know, if the first ballot by the delegates does not yield a majority, then the next vote, they, they can vote for whoever they want. These delegates are no longer bound. Even the bound delegates who came in during that first round of the nomination process required to vote in the way that their state popular vote uh, played out. They can vote for whoever they want now, including Berman Supreme. 
Yes, Vermin Supreme, my favorite favorite uh, perennial. Or I guess that's I guess that's quadrennial presidential candidate. Always runs in an independent as an independent. And if you Google image search him, he's got a big hobo beard and wears a boot on his head and has four ties. <laughs> and his part of his part of the core of his campaign platform is uh, a free pony for every American and going back in time to assassinate Hitler. And it, he's not actually mad. He's just a satire candidate, but he's awesome. Uh, and he gets a lot of press attention. He's a lot of fun. So they could vote for him. They could. They won't because they're not crazy. And they do have instructions from their various state parties uh, about what they want because each state's very different. Right. So the GOP in Texas is very different from the GOP in Washington or Maryland or Massachusetts. And so this is where the brokered part comes in. And that's very fun because uh, just horse trading totally takes over. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, and... This is also sort of where some of the GOP elite strategy comes in. And if you've been following the news about the nomination process so far, you may have heard talk of the brokered convention in terms of one of the last options that the GOP elite has to stop Trump. So, and, and that's because, you know, let's say that the establishment doesn't like a popular candidate. Trump is the one that, that really matters in this, in this nomination process. So it means that the party bosses are just going to be licking their chops at the idea of a broker convention because it is an opportunity to completely remove him from the equation in the second round if they play their negotiations right. Yeah, exactly. And so we're going to look closely at uh, what could happen this year with a broker convention for the GOP specifically because it's somewhat likely, whereas with the Democrats, it's grossly unlikely. Yeah. It's very likely... Hillary Clinton will win even without the superdelegates. Now, what's interesting is it's actually more likely in general that the Democrats might have a convention that uh, involves horse trading, because since there are 20% of those delegates that are superdelegates, uh, if someone comes in with fewer than 60% of the pledge delegates, those delegates have some power. Now, as we said before, in the past, they have tended to not overturn, I don't think they ever have overturned the public vote, but in 1984, I think Walter Mondale walked in with fewer than 60%. And so there's a question, are the superdelegates just going to rally behind him? Are they going to go to the other guy? Are they going to vote for a third person entirely and take it to Berkeley Convention? Who knows? But it didn't happen. It hasn't happened. But this year it could happen to the Republicans. And 
it'll be, yeah, it's going to be really exciting. So you're a politics wonk and you're thinking, so the Republicans might have a broker convention. How exciting, right? Except, of course, there's one hang up. If you have really looked into this subject, if you're as big of a nerd as we are, you might have heard about this. Yes, you are. It, Say again? If you, if you have heard of this rule, uh, you are officially a super nerd. You can pat yourself on the back. Well done. Right. And that rule is rule 40. Boom. Yeah, I either drum roll or cue like, to fall bum, asleep. Bum, yeah. Bum, <laughs> bum, bum. We should get some sound effects for the podcast. We w- yes, it's now a priority. Rule 40. Bum, bum, bum. Of the GOP's official primary convention rules. So the Republicans have plenty of weird rules as as do the Democrats. It's even more than 40 of them, actually. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> At least 40. At, at, at least happen, 40 strange rules to nominate. We happen candidate. to know it's more. Uh, and uh, so in, in, in 2012, the Republicans added this one rule, rule 40, and specifically paragraph B of rule 40, if you want to go look it up. It's linked on the on the blog, so you can. Ah, yeah. You don't, you don't even need to do a Google search. We did that for Just you. click. Get her done. Rule 40, paragraph B, says that a candidate, a Republican candidate, cannot be nominated unless they have the majority of delegates from at least eight states. Bum, bum, bum. It's, it's both dramatic and kind of hard to parse at the same time. They need a majority of delegates from at least eight states. This is in addition to receiving the requisite 1,237 delegates total in aggregate that's required to achieve a general majority and secure the nomination. So they need both 1,237 delegates total and a majority win from at least eight states. So recently Rubio, uh, Margo Rubio said something along the lines of this isn't about states. It's only about delegates. And what he was implying there is, you know, I don't need to be winning these individual states. The point is in aggregate, I just need enough delegates so that at the convention, I become the nomination. Ain't wrong. At least as the rules currently stand, that is wrong. So, so long as Rule 40B continues to stay in effect, more foreshadowing, you not only need the majority of delegates, as Marco Rubio described it, 1,237 in aggregate, but he also actually needs to win in eight states. And usually more than win, because you might win with like 35% of the vote when there are four candidates and so winning a state doesn't you know getting the most getting the plurality of popular votes in a state does not necessarily mean that you will get a majority of delegates yeah so there are actually going to be a bunch of states where nobody from rule 40b's perspective wins uh so i did the math and right now as of march 10th after the march 8th primaries trump's likely to cross that threshold because he has six of those states Cruz is somewhat likely he has two, but he's well positioned to win some more of those. Rubio and Kasich are very unlikely. Rubio has one. It's Puerto Rico. And he might get another in Florida. Probably not. But his poll numbers are tanking. Kasich is likely to pick up one in Ohio, which is winner take all. But it's just these guys aren't going to get to eight. It's just not going to happen. And so let's say that only Trump makes it. Does it mean that Trump wins? And if 
Trump and Cruz make it? Does it mean one of them wins? Remember how I said there was going to be foreshadowing? This is where I was foreshadowing too. So so now now we're in the shadow. We're we're in the current shadow, and then there will be a post shadow. Post shadow. So does that mean that Trump wins? Yes, if Rule Forty B stands. Bum, bum, bum. More dramatic music. So the the, the the trick here is that the Republicans can change Rule Forty B at any time, so long as they receive a consent of the majority of delegates. So these rules only stay rules so long as everyone still wants them to be rules at the time. They are potentially likely to change this, especially because it's likely that most of those delegates who will, in the second vote at the convention, they won't be very big on Trump. They'll probably be more inclined towards the the consensus GOP elite sort of perspective on on the on the on the candidate field yeah because just note that the the delegates aren't picked by the candidate they do not have personal loyalty to the candidate they have personal loyalty to the state party that has sent them uh which means generally establishment right and a lot of these delegates are elected officials but they're but they might be like governors or congressmen in states they're state assemblymen, yeah. Right. They're just important people in the party, but their role as delegate is selected by party bosses. Yep. So what's interesting about this rule 40B is, you know, as I said, it requires eight state majorities. It's really it's a brand new rule. It was only passed in 2012, and interesting tidbit, it was passed as an attempt to minimize Ron Paul, uh, Ron Paul's momentum and to gain party cohesion around Mitt Romney. Right. And it worked then, and it's potentially biting the establishment now, because they had no idea that Trump was coming. Nobody else did either. Oh, sweet irony. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so if, if Rules 40 stands, it's going to be a really way less exciting convention than we were hoping, because it'll be the Trump show, which is exciting in its own way. But... They'll probably change it. So how likely is this very exciting brokered convention thing? And we can't answer that now. But after March 15th, we'll have a pretty good idea. And here's why. Trump's numbers happen to be dropping uh, a bit after their dizzying highs about 40% nationally. So he's like between 30 and 35% right now. He's still in the lead but he's not going to be getting a majority of delegates in a whole lot of states, or he'll be getting a small majority, or in some cases, he's just flat out losing to Cruz. Um, So Cruz is actually not as far behind him as you might think, given the Trump is dominating messaging you've been hearing. Rubio and Kasich are very unlikely to get a boatload of candidates, but they will nip a few and... March 15th just so happens to be the Ohio and Florida primaries. And these just so happen to be really big winners-take-all states. And they just so happen to be the respective home turf of Governor Kasich of Ohio and Marco Rubio of Florida. Eric, I didn't realize you were a tenor. I'm a falsetto, falsetto actually, (laughs) at times. (laughs) Uh, so, so a contralto then. Yeah, Very exactly. Impressive. That one. That one. Uh, that that joke was funny to the three people <laughs> in the world who know what a contralto I think is. The kind of people <laughs> that are looking up Rule Forty are also likely to know what a contralto <laughs> is. 
So, again, welcome to the club, listeners. It's so great knowing that you're enjoying this. Or if you're not, hopefully you're Wikipedia and what Contralto means. And hopefully we've not driven you away now. But if we have, it's been great. Thank you. Bye. So, <laughs> there's uh, there's this guy, Nate Silver. He's a pretty well-known statistician who has done generally pretty well at predicting some of these election polls, but not necessarily recently. So he, he, he has this web or this media organization called 538 that he founded and they do basically data statistics oriented political and economic and also cultural and some other stuff. And some quick trivia, 538 is the total number of electoral college votes for the U.S. presidential election in November. So it's based on the number of Congress people, 435, plus 100 senators. And that's how they divide the electoral college votes by state. So it's your your House plus your senators. And then they add three for D.C. because D.C. gets a little tiny voice in the U.S. presidential election as if it was a tiny state. So there you go. So if you ever wanted to know how 538 got its name, now you know. Can't do the deep babes voice, but... um, (laughs) Now you know. So there you go. Thank you. So 538 has noticed that the... So 538 has basically two predictions going on right now in the nomination process. One is called polls, or I think polls only, and the other is called polls plus, which uh, the first one, polls only, just incorporates an aggregate of a number of different polls on which their predictions are based. The second polls plus is that plus media and other mentions of their name and social media and, and endorsements. Like that. And that's right. Endorsements is a big part of the yeah. polls plus polls plus has not been doing as well. Eric. Is yeah. Cause the Trump earlier. phenomenon is just weird because what happens is, you know, Trump only really gets negative endorsements. He gets people coming out and saying, I don't care who you vote for. Just don't vote for this guy. And he keeps winning despite that. So all this like endorsement stuff that normally really packs on to a candidate isn't happening. And the reason he did Pulse Plus is because what happens is a lot of people make up their mind basically that two or three days before election day or primary day when they actually sit down and do their research. And so when you read the local paper, you know, if I'm in Boston, so the Boston Globe said vote Kasich and the uh, Herald said vote Rubio. And typically these have a pretty profound effect. And so the polling a week beforehand changes in favor to some extent of the people who got the endorsements. Uh, it just hasn't, it, Trump has just been totally immune to it. Right. So he, he has this polls plus forecast. And we were talking a moment ago about the importance of Ohio and Florida primaries that are coming up on March 15th. So Kasich in, in, in Ohio, and that's his home state, has been, according to this Polls Plus forecast, been trending increasingly positive. And Trump's uh, standing has continued to fall. As of March 9th, when I pulled it up yesterday, 538's Polls Plus forecast was predicting uh, Kasich with a 69% chance of winning, Trump with a 30% chance, Cruz and Rubio each with 1%. Yeah, and I looked at the polls-only analysis Trump and Kasich are in a dead heat there at about 50% apiece, but I am predicting just based on Kasich's upward trend and Trump's downward trend and also the tactical vote that some potential Rubio or Cruz 
supporters who predict based on the polls that they won't win, but they don't want Trump. So they'll take a tactical vote and go over to Kasich. I suspect based on all this that Kasich has the edge, but I think it'll be a nail biter. So Ohio's mm-hmm. close. Florida is looking pretty darn grim for Rubio right now. It's like a 20% gap in the polls. Uh, and it's just, it's going to be a, he's going to have a bad day, probably. So, you know, what happens in different scenarios about Trump winning Ohio or Florida or both? So let's say he wins both. Remember, they're winner take all states. So he gets a boatload of delegates and also blocks those off from other people. If he wins both of those and gets about what we'd expect in Illinois, Missouri, and North Carolina, this is all of these vote on Tuesday. It's a it's an exciting day. What what will happen is going forward, he will need about 50 to 52 percent of the rest of the delegates to clinch the nomination, to clinch it outright, which means he will have you know gone into that day winning about half. And bigging, given some of the big states to come, like New York and California, where he actually has an edge, uh, it's probably actually likely, should he win both Florida and Ohio, that he's going to win outright with those 1,237 delegates going in, no broker convention, it's Trump town. Now, if Kasich wins Ohio, and it looks like he has a, at least a good shot at it, Trump would then need 57 to 59% of the delegates going forward from that point. And uh, Trump then avoiding a brokered convention becomes a little bit more... Right, because it means he'll have to perform way better than he's been performing going into this. It becomes more of a toss-up, yeah. Now, if Kasich wins Ohio and Rubio wins Florida, Trump would then need 69% of the delegates going forward to win outright. That's, That's probably not going to happen, though, as uh, is, is I understand, Rubio is not training as positively in Florida as Ohio, uh, Kasich is in Ohio. Yeah, that's just not going to happen. So at this point, it's probably yeah. basically either Trump is pretty close to clinching it unless something weird happens, or he's pretty close to not clinching it unless something weird happens. So it's it's actually just mad how much of a difference Ohio makes in this nomination. And so... All, all of you guys who are really excited should just have your eyeballs glued to whatever is your favorite live tweet or whatever service for this stuff. Um, and thanks, by the way, to Chris Kiliza, I hope I got his name right, of Washington Post's The Fix. Uh, he ran the numbers on the March 15th scenarios here, and we're just quoting that, uh, but we're making our own predictions about how likely they are. And uh, he's that post is linked in the blog post here. So if you want to go read a little bit more about that, you can do there. Uh, you know, I added a side note here where I'm actually genuinely surprised that Kasich and Rubio haven't gone to each other's home states and instructed their supporters to tactically vote for the other on their home turf. So that because, frankly, for either of these guys, a broker convention is their only prayer of becoming president. There's just no, there's just no way that mm-hmm. they're going to end up winning outright. So what you'd presumably want to do is just minimize Trump's odds of, you know, just nip away at, at, uh, at delegates, minimize Trump's odds. It kind of doesn't matter between the two of you who has slightly more delegates 
than someone else. So I, I'm just surprised that Kasich hasn't gone to Florida and been like, Floridians, bloody vote for Rubio. If you like me, vote for Rubio. Just don't vote for Trump. Mm-hmm, now, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, if, if that happened, it would smell of foul play and Trump would be more likely to say that he's treated unfair and go be play third party. I don't know. I'm sure they've thought of it, but I'm surprised they haven't done it. Yeah, that, that's actually a really great point. And this entire brokered convention issue really becomes sort of a delicate ballot balance for the delegates and party elites between retaining control of their party and maintaining the appearance of legitimacy. Because if they use these tools that are built into the party structure that allows them to regain or maintain control... They're there, but each time that one of these tools is used, the entire process begins to appear less democratic, and they run the risk of losing the party base because they no longer feel that their representatives are working their interests. Right, yeah, and when we tell people, hey, you get to come vote, oh, by the way, we just totally threw away your vote, we don't care, and we rigged it as hard as we could to make sure your vote didn't count, it, it hurts later in the election. And by the way, just for anyone who's curious about Cruz's odds here, it's also highly unlikely that he pulls out and wins outright. Uh, There's some chance everyone could rally around him. Maybe if both Kasich and Rubio lose their states, they'll drop out. And then the anti-Trump brigade, which is pretty big, would move to him. But if one of them stays in the race, it's unlikely he's going to pick up a lot of the voters from others. So I don't see him getting a straight up majority, but he's going to stay pretty strong, I think, because he's got a very loyal conservative, you know, and evangelical base that's going to buoy him in. So it might be, you know, it might be, let's say if Rubio loses and drops out, it might be a pretty solid three-man race going to the end. So it goes to the end. There's a good chance it'll be brokered. And if it's brokered, who's likely to win? Well, I... We can't say. That's just, you know, really, really, really hard to say. And the biggest, I mean, one, this is just all, you know, it's it's all backroom deals and all sorts of stuff could happen. But you might say, well, is it likely that it's going to be someone with the most delegates going in or the person with the most delegates going in that's not Trump or the most person with the most delegates going in that's a establishment favorite? And they're just there since there hasn't been a broker convention in 64 bloody years and so much has changed since then and almost nobody alive even remembers what a broker convention is like it's just it, it's i think it's impossible to be able to guess what the heck is going to happen there and i'm sure that the local party bosses are scrambling to think about it but you yeah. know but i think it's a i do think it's a stretch to think that the republicans are going to choose someone that's not fairly popular overall or, or someone who has never, you know, who didn't run this year. There have been rustlings of Mitt Romney. Yeah, I know. I just, I'd be so surprised. Yeah. I mean, the guy didn't even run in the election. There could be a voter revolt if, if that were to be the case and he won the nomination. Uh, ultimately the party bosses are looking for someone who can win against right. Clinton. Who knows if he'd be able to do that. Right. right? But I, I mean, your whole discussion on this not having taken place in 64 years, the wonky excitement surrounding or surrounding it. I mean, you and I are both fans of history. We 
we read a lot about what has happened for fun. And there are moments like this where I find myself sort of recognizing that I am in the process of history being oh, made totally. and alive and around to be witnessing it. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I the opinion, I think Trump's crazy. He, he can't win the election. I mean, that's take that aside. If you can still sort of see how the GOP is, runs the risk of splintering and what that would mean for the balance of power between parties and just the fact that a brokered convention hasn't happened in a long time. I mean, it's kind of an interesting time to be around. Yeah, definitely interesting. So these establishment guys in the GOP, and um, they'll mostly be delegates, most of them really don't like Trump. And they're generally not that big on Cruz either. I mean, before this whole uh, nomination uh, process got started, he was seen as sort of one of those crazy right-winger Tea Party guys by the party bosses who they can never really predict yeah, trust. Yeah, and the Senate notoriously hates the guy, and he has not, as of today, picked up a single endorsement from any of his senatorial colleagues. They just don't like him. Yeah, but the, the problem, of course, is Trump is kind of the guy who would, if he lost the GOP nomination, would totally run as a third party if he got snubbed at the uh, convention after coming in with a, a plurality of popular votes, if not a majority. And that's frankly pretty likely. I mean, he's he's referred to this in interviews that he's given that he would very seriously consider running as an independent, even after taking the pledge where he said he wouldn't. Um, and this is likely unless the GOP field shrinks down and the rest of their voters kind of hold their noses and vote for not Trump. And, uh, you know, Trump is pretty unpopular generally among like the 60% that never really hopped on his bandwagon. So this it could happen. It could happen. It could. Yeah. Lots of caveats, right? right? Because the, the future is uncertain. And, and who knows, maybe he even runs as a third party if he doesn't get the popular vote. It's hard yeah, to tell. Yeah, because his, his caveat that he made later after the pledge not to run as an independent was, well, if the GOP doesn't treat me fairly, uh, that is completely open to my interpretation, by the way. Uh, if it doesn't treat me fairly, I will seriously consider running for third party. So he might just go and do that. And so the establishment right now, if they go into this broker convention, is stuck between just handing it to Trump in the hopes that the party's willing to rally behind him, but they hate him with a, like a righteous fury. Uh, and, you know, that might even cause Republicans to flee to Clinton and just say, nope, don't want Trump. I will literally vote for the other party uh, in order to not have Trump. And then they get fractured and shellacked by Clinton. Um, and then Trump, if he doesn't get the nomination and he runs a third party and he gets his fans to come with him, the party fractures and they totally get shellacked. So they're, they're actually in a really, really tricky spot right now. And I do not envy the people that will be thinking about how to make this decision going into June. Yeah, there, there will be a lot of very pragmatic thinking that goes into this. All the candidates are going to be the convention. So, you know, you can imagine even a situation like this occurring where they go and offer Trump something serious to encourage him to step aside from continuing to uh, run for the nomination of presidential candidate. Uh, who knows? Maybe he ends up as some unlucky candidate's VP. Oh. But 
you, you can imagine the Republicans having learned their lesson from Sarah Palin that maybe this doesn't work so well. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe they offer him ambassador to somewhere like the Bahamas. Yeah, yeah, the Bahamas. It could be like, this hotel is going to be huge. Right? Huge. That would be, oh. uh, I mean, that would be a good place to stick him. Just have him hang out on the beach, build some hotels, you know, make deals with the Bahamanian president to do whatever. And, <laughs> uh, and, and then he can just stay out of the way of the establishment and that might work you know if they can convince them that it would work out really well for them or at least the doomsday scenario wouldn't happen who knows what's going to happen in the election who knows who the republican candidate would be but anyway that's that's all of the just total crazy mayhem that is the republican nomination right now uh who knows What's going to happen? Um, but you know, we've we've just sort of walked through some of the potential scenarios, you know, ad nauseum, so that as you watch the March fifteenth results with very very bated breath, you can start to see some of these possibilities, these waveforms collapsing into reality, and then we'll probably start getting much more tight into one path that becomes increasingly likely. Um, what's so crazy about this is if we imagine Ohio, very tight, you know, a fair number of people, hundreds of thousands are likely to come out to vote. But because they're so tight, there is a chance that Trump or Kasich could win that state by a single vote. And if that happened, it will probably determine the outcome of the entire Republican nomination process. It will be the linchpin vote. So if you ever thought that your vote doesn't matter, if you're listening into if you're listening to us from Ohio, holy smokes, it does. You know, if you've got a strong opinion on this, go do something about it. Don't stay home because you might be very disappointed later. So that was a lot of fun. Hope you enjoyed it. Keep your eyeballs on the tube for Tuesday. We'll come back with, I'm sure, something to update the blog post here after that. You can go to somethingtoconsidermovement.com slash reconsider. We're also going to be live tweeting the heck out of the out of the results as they come in. So if you'd like to stick your eyeballs to our Twitter account as we send those updates, it is reconsiderpod on Twitter. Our Facebook, which also has some fun stuff, is also reconsiderpod. If you've got thoughts, questions, if you want us to cover any other topic coming up. We've got a queue, but if we get some demand, we'll pop stuff into the queue and push it forward like we did with Apple versus FBI. Um, Yeah, let us know. So with that, just remember, as you're watching all this stuff unfold, don't think... What the fuck's our motto? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just remember... Don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Stop and reconsider. So this is Eric signing off. Talk to you guys in a couple weeks. This is Xander signing off. Enjoy the primaries. Woo! Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.